of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in a town called Jericho. Now one time Jesus was passing through and a large crowd of people started to gather around uh, Jesus. And Zacchaeus was a curious man and he walked out there because he wanted to see who this Jesus guy was. Now luckily for Zacchaeus, he was really, really tall. But not really. He was actually a wee little man as we learned in the song. Um, So Zacchaeus had trouble actually seeing through the crowd. So he knows that, hey, Jesus is walking down this road. So he said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go run, towards, run down the road a little bit, climb up in the sycamore fig tree so I can get a better look at who he is. So as Jesus is approaching the tree, Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus, and he calls him by name. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree immediately because I have to go to your house today. Zacchaeus gladly gets down from the tree and welcomes him. And as they're walking, the crowd around them starts to show that they're displeased. And they say, I don't know about this Jesus guy. He's going to the house of a sinner. So Zacchaeus exclaims, he says, Lord, I want to give half of my possessions away to the poor right now. And if I've ever cheated anyone out of their taxes, I want to repay them four times the amount that I've cheated them. Jesus responds to this and he says, Today salvation has come to you. Because I am the son of man, And I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for every day, God. Um, We just want to give this weekend to you. We want to give this service to you. We want to give Blaine's message, our worship, the story. Lord, let it be your words. Let it be you who's moving in the room. Let it be you who is moving in the hearts of everyone that is here to listen. God, I pray that we listen with open hearts and with open minds. And I pray that any nerves inside of Blaine just exit him and he knows in confidence that he is preaching your word with your love in his heart. So we pray all this over our service. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, welcome. We're so glad uh, you guys let us take over service again, or I should say Ken and the elders, for uh, another year. It's always a pleasure to come and be with you guys. Before we really get started, if, if anyone needs a Bible or wants a Bible, um, you can raise your hand, and our students and leaders would love to pass one out to you. Um, I'm especially thankful you came tonight because it looked like uh, the flood part two was coming, um, and it was sunny, and we were all like, wow, it turned out to be a nice day. And then we got done rehearsing and stood outside, and it was just like, whoosh. And I'm like, but I just, Jesus is probably going to wash everyone away. It's fine. Like, my nerves will go away. It'll be cool. I'll get myself out of this whole thing. It'll be wonderful. Um, hey, quick question. How many of you guys have ever... Like verbally had someone tell you you weren't good enough. Anybody ever experienced that? Oh, not shocking. Summer of 1995, um, I just finished junior year of high school, um, which used to seem like not that long ago, but now I work with kids who were born in the 2000s, and I go, well, that's weird. Um, uh, So it's the summer of 1995. I played basketball my entire year, right? And in the summers, what they do is the, uh, our, our coach would gather up the varsity team, those that were still left that weren't graduating. They would take some of the kids from JV and, and some other kids that they thought might have a chance at making varsity, and they would take us to a basketball camp somewhere. And so my sophomore year, we went to Wazoo, which we don't really speak of because it's like the little sibling who never wins anything. And so... <laughs> In this particular year, in 1995, we went to UW. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Go dogs. And, um, and so we get there, and this is like, like camp is, like, it's intense. For like four days, I think it was, you essentially get up, 
eat and then go like do drills and practice and see, I mean, come on, it's cafeteria food, that's disgusting to then go run and play and then you would go sit in like meetings and hear coaches talk about things and then you'd play games like the rest of the day. And so this particular summer in Washington was actually pretty warm and there's a bunch of teams in these gyms and it's like, even though they can pump out AC, like it's just swelteringly hot in there. And so we're getting towards the end of the week and, and I'm kind of in and out, coaches like, you know, trying to evaluate everybody. And I get in there and it's towards like the end of the game and it's kind of meaningless. I mean, none of these games really count for anything. You're just trying to practice and, and get good and see like, you know, how you measure up to other people. And so we get towards the end of the game. I'm running down the court. I'm guarding this guy. He beats me and scores, and I hear my coach, who I don't know if you ever played a sport, or I don't think this probably happens too much in theater and stuff, where they just like are the yellers, you know what I mean? Um, and my coach yells out, Christensen! And, I, and when you hear that, you never think, oh, I bet something good's coming. Like, oh, oh, I bet he's gonna tell me, great job, yeah, you're awesome. You're the best player we have. But he yells, Christensen, you know what your problem is? <laughs> you? <laughs> uh, you're too slow. I'm like, whoa, ouch. <laughs> like, I don't know it's like, if it's part of the millennial in me where everyone gets a trophy and whatnot, but I took that, like, that hurt. Because here's the deal. Basically, he was yelling at me was, you're not good enough, right? You're not fast enough. You're not quick enough to be out on that court right now guarding that particular person. Now, he may not really had too much behind that, right? But if he knew my story, he would know that there's been other times in especially sports where I had people tell me I wasn't good enough. After my eighth grade year uh, in that summer, I played baseball and we were at the All-Star Games and I barely got to play until the very last game. And wouldn't you know, I'm like one of the only ones that got a hit and I got an RBI in the entire game. Afterwards, the, um, the guy who ran the Little League walks up to me and puts his arm around me and he said, maybe, Blaine, maybe baseball is just not your sport. So my coach, fast forward to then, didn't realize that this was something in my life that it began to build inside of me that I'm just not good enough. I'm not that kid, right? And I don't know about you, but I feel like w that happens a lot probably to a lot of people and not just myself. Maybe you think you're not very good at your job or maybe you're not a very good parent or a spouse or if you're a student with us, maybe it's school or maybe it's, it's in athletics Maybe it's your faith, maybe it's life that you feel like you're not that great at, right? Richard Sermon, who we don't speak about anymore because he traded us, um, he once told a sports uh, personality, he said, I'm better at life than you. Man, we can be pretty bold at times with the things that we say to each other, right? And so maybe you're here and you're like me and you heard these things and maybe sometimes what you get told is maybe not, you're not good enough, but maybe it's, you're too emotional. You're too dramatic, you're too needy. And what ends up happening is these things begin to speak into who you are, right? Like you hear them enough, they become who you are. And then those begin to mess with your confidence in who you are, right? And to the point like me, that I began to develop anxiety over some of those things. Like I, I think about that when I write sermons and I come to preach, it's the first thing that goes through my mind is, is this gonna be good enough? Will this matter, will this make a difference? And maybe someone's had the nerves to kind of tell you that to your face. But what about when you tell yourself, right? What about the times when you say things like, ah, like, I'm not proud of the mistakes I made, you know? 
Maybe you think of the choices you've done and, and the decisions you made, and because of those things, then you don't and aren't good enough, right? And so you begin to make these accusations about yourself that maybe you're unlovable, maybe um, you're full of shame, and, or that you're insignificant, you're not a difference maker, maybe you're excluded. And these are all things that I've thought about myself, right? Maybe that's you, it's in your own. But maybe you've told someone, well that's not fun. (laughs) Maybe you've viewed others as not good enough or to this or to that. Maybe you think to yourself at work, like man, why don't they get rid of that dude? Like he's terrible at his job. Like he just should not be here. Or what if you're out at the grocery store and you see the mother struggling with the kid and you're like, if I was that parent. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I know that life. (laughs) Not every kid is the same, and sometimes I wish, go ahead, (laughs) take them. (laughs) For a week, they're yours. Just feed them. But maybe, maybe you drive around the streets of Everett and you're like, look at all these junkies, right? I go to this particular Starbucks like, well, far too often. And uh, it's an area where there's a lot of homeless people. And, um, and last week, I was telling Daniel and the staff, like last week I drove through the drive-thru and when I pulled around, there was a guy literally smoking uh, cocaine right in the middle of the parking lot. My first thoughts were like, man, you know what I mean? And see, I think a lot of times we tell people all the time that they're not good enough or maybe we devalue them, right? I say it, <laughs> and I'm not even making like excuses or trying to like make anyone feel bad or, or, or anything like that. I'm just kind of pointing out, I guess, what I hate to admit about myself, oftentimes. And the interesting thing is all three of those like scenarios I painted, they're me, right? And maybe, I'm guessing, there's numerous of you that feel the same way that you could put yourself in each one. And my point is what I'm trying to say is this is we too often have kind of this exclusivity problem when Jesus modeled an inclusive kingdom. See, I, I love this story of Zacchaeus because it models just that thought. Where we try to say no, Jesus says come, come to my kingdom, come on. Check out these verses, I wanna read them to you again. It's in Luke 19, one through 10 if you're following along. He entered Jericho and was passing through and behold there was a man named Zacchaeus He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And as he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone for anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son or a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Here's a little background. Jericho, uh, 
it, it had like this forest of palm trees. In fact, it was known as kind of the city of palms. It was a beautiful place, but it was also a very rich place because it was one of the greatest taxation centers in all of Palestine back then, right? And then you get this guy named Zacchaeus who happens to be the chief tax collector of all of it, right? He's kind of climbed his way to the top and he's the one who, would, uh, who contracted for sales and custom taxes, and he was the one who then would hire the collectors to go out and do his thing. Now, because of this great role that Zacchaeus already had, you can imagine he's probably pretty wealthy, with no need to cheat anyone, yet he did. And because of all that, it's not probably a stretch to imagine that he's one of the most hated men in the entire town. I would probably be included in that. Uh, not as one of the hated ones, but as one of the ones who hated. That, yeah, just, <laughs> I am not rich, um, nor would I have been then. But here's the cool thing is Jesus comes to Jericho, right? And you gotta imagine, like, Zacchaeus is probably starting to catch word of who he is. Like, Jesus is beginning to get a following with them. And they're coming down, and this crowd's following along. And you gotta imagine that even though Zacchaeus was rich and wealthy and all that, I would bet that along with that came loneliness and unhappiness, And we can only assume that he's heard about Jesus welcoming people like himself. And so he begins to have this desire to possibly go and see him. And I think in this story we kind of see like these kind of three stages of Zacchaeus that I want to point out. Here's the first one is Zacchaeus was reaching after the love of God. And so you see him in this crowd, right? And he's there to get a glimpse of Jesus and he's got this thing working against him, right? It's that he's incredibly short. In fact, according to like Mediterranean standards, uh, there's a potential that he was under five feet tall. Now, I can relate to the guy. I'm not super tall, I'm 5'7", so if I roll into a tall crowd of people, it's extremely hard to see. My buddy and I are going to this concert in August, and there are drill mission tickets standing on the ground. You know what I'm gonna be doing the whole time? Like, oh, is it cool? Like, my friend's 6'8", so he's up there somewhere, and I may climb him to get a glimpse of the band. Like, I get it. It's really hard, and so Zacchaeus in his mind is like, well, if I gotta see him, I gotta weed my way through this crowd. And so he begins to mangle his way through that, which I'm guessing took some courage anyways, because if you're the hated man in the crowd and you're walking through, you gotta imagine that people were willing to take nudges and punches and kicks and stabs at the man as he was making his way. Well, he doesn't get a a glimpse of Jesus, and so I got a picture of this, so he goes and he climbs a sycamore tree, which looks awfully like that. He's not climbing an evergreen or anything like that, but he decides to climb a tree. He wants to reach out, he wants to see. Well, the second stage that I kind of notice is his courage out of desperation. See, he desired to see Jesus and to get this opportunity to meet him so badly that in his desperation, he wouldn't even let the disadvantage of not being able to see stop him. Because I think a lot of people probably would have given up, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a real crazy parade with kids and stuff like that, and you're like, well, this is pointless to be in this crowd. But there's something about this desperation, I think, that lies within him that said, no, I'm gonna see him no matter what. I'm gonna weave my uh, way through this crowd that probably doesn't like me, and even though I have this disadvantage of not being able to see, I'm not gonna let that stop me either. I'm gonna climb this tree. When you know that Jesus gets to this tree, and he stops, and he looks up, and he calls him by name, never met him. In fact, back in those days, Jewish people would uh, naturally thought that if someone could do such a thing, then they must be a prophet. In order to call out someone's name without having met that person or known that person, they consider it prophetic, right? And he calls them out and invites them to come on down and be a guest, at, or he wants to be a guest at his house. 
Now, it's not like when your rude friend <laughs> invites himself over uh, time and time again. I don't know if you've ever had that. Or maybe that's more of a grade school, elementary, or high school thing. You know what I'm saying? The person is always inviting themselves over, and you're like, no, I'm kind of tired of you. But Jesus invites himself over, maybe partly because he's homeless. I mean, I don't know, he doesn't really have a house. But, but also, even back in those days, apparently it was really uncommon even for this situation to happen. So this is a really unique thing that Jesus is inviting himself over to sit and to be with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus wasn't mad. Instead, Zacchaeus is like giddy. In fact, they said the word joyful that Zacchaeus is, that Jesus would invite himself over. You gotta imagine if you're full of like, you're not good enough, you're a cheat, despair, loneliness, if Jesus approaches you and calls you by name and invites himself over, how incredibly joyful you might feel that he would reach out to you. It's crazy. Well, when you know the crowd is like sitting there watching and they're looking at him and they see Jesus doing what he's doing and they immediately think like, one translation says notorious sinner. Look at him. Can you believe he's gonna go be a guest at his house? Like, I can't even believe that. Come on, man, that's Zacchaeus. He's not good enough to go sit with you. Well, then Zacchaeus has this incredible encounter in the third stage of Zacchaeus' little storyline here is a changed heart results in a radical response. Zacchaeus goes with Jesus and it says that Zacchaeus then like puts this newfound changed life on display, right? Like he doesn't just go with him and hang out and maybe have a meal, but instead he goes and he gives all of his, or half of his possessions to the poor. And he says, well, if I've cheated anybody, Jesus, I'll give them four times the amount that I cheated them. And even in ancient uh, times back then, um, the amount that was required to like pay back for something like this was not as much as he did. And so they say that what he did was uh, above and beyond, which was required by law. And I think part of that is because like, like say that the law said you're supposed to pay back X amount of dollars. He could do that and just be like, oh, okay, here, like I'm required, I could get in trouble. But instead, not only does that, but he gives four times the amount. And back then, in their accounts of discipleship, a radical response with possessions was a certain sign of a newly acquired devotion to a teacher. So it makes sense that he has this encounter immediately with his possessions, turns them over, right? And you know what I love that I think maybe I missed for a really long time about this story? I mean, obviously, if you grew up in the church, you have the song stuck in your head. Probably, you probably haven't heard a word I've said because it's on repeat, like Zacchaeus was a wee little man. But I think what I missed is the fact that when Jesus approached him and invited himself over, he didn't approach the tree and say, hey Zacchaeus, I want you to change your life, get all cleaned up, and, and when you do all that, then I'm gonna come over and be a guest at your house. I don't know why that never dawned on me that he didn't call for him to clean up everything in his life before he said, I'm gonna sit down and be at your table with you. And I think sometimes we as Christians, as the church, and, and anybody in general, really, we kind of reverse those two, right? Like I think oftentimes we think in our own minds and our hearts that we have to get cleaned up, dolled up, and be perfect before we can come to Jesus and be in his presence, but it's quite the opposite. We think, man, I need to stop my porn addiction before I can X, Y, Z. I need to stop lying before I can truly be accepted. I need to like, lose 10 pounds before I can see my physical body as beautifully made by the one who created me, right? 
I need to achieve financial success before I will be generous and trust God with what I have. I, I need to ace this class before I can be considered smart enough or climb the corporate ladder until I can be good enough. Now yes, some of those things we need to stop doing. But the challenge is, is to meet first with Jesus and allow him to change you, right? If you're here and you've been hearing that and thinking that to yourself, then I want you to know that you are invited to Jesus' table. You do not have to be cleaned up to go. You do not have to give everything forgiven before you get to be at the table with Jesus. Because when you do choose to sit at the table with Jesus over and over again, you'll begin to see yourself as loved, as valued, as important, as creatively made, and as good enough as you need to be. And then you'll see the generosity of Jesus' love for you begin to spill out in the generosity of yours for others. Jesus didn't tell him to go and give away all his possessions before he invited himself over. He met with him first. There's always room at Jesus' table for you. But what about the crowd? I love, <laughs> I love how we miss details sometimes, and this is another one I missed. Like I never really, I just kind of like, oh, those dummies, <laughs> like they're mean. What about the crowd that was looking at Jesus and Zacchaeus and said, can you believe that? Well, in the first century, who you ate with, what they called table fellowship, was kind of a political statement because there was this religious establishment who determined who was clean and who was unclean, who was in and who was out, who was righteous and belonged, and those who were unrighteous that they considered sinners who were a part of the problem. And basically, you can't dine with someone who's essentially part of the problem, a.k.a. Zacchaeus, right? He's the cheat. He's the crook. He's a problem. So dining with those that are the problem is almost like making a political statement that they are then okay, and you can go ahead and sit with them. And it's interesting when you read the Gospels how many times (laughs) Jesus is involved with eating. Like, either he's, he's super hungry. Like, it's so many stories, right? And you read through them, and when he is making those statements, when he is meeting and eating all the time with all those different people, he's making statements, and, and it's, this, it's like this electric, volatile issue, as you can imagine, because he's essentially saying whoever he's eating with is okay then, that they're considered clean then. His eating, his table fellowship was this bold, countercultural, subversive statement that they were all right. And who did he choose to usually dine with? outcasts, prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors. In this particular story, it says they they grumbled at him. See, Jesus was saying that Zacchaeus was okay. He was saying that Zacchaeus was valued. He was saying that Zacchaeus is lovable. And he knew that Zacchaeus could be a change maker if only he would come to him, right? Right? And because of their limited view of him, they were unable to rejoice in the miracle that was about to take place. They would have missed it. And it begs the question of what's happened to a person's heart that they witnessed something so beautiful and miraculous that they are unable to rejoice. 
There's this preacher I follow, he's a local guy, and um, he was preaching on another story from the Gospels where Jesus healed someone, and the same kind of thing happened. They didn't want to rejoice with what the miracle was. And he says this when relating it to us at times. There's something scary about when we allow our sides and our views, our associations, our tribes, our laws, our religious institutions, when we elevate those things above Jesus, they blind us from being able to see and rejoice in something that is good and beautiful. And it's not just a word for people witnessing Jesus eating with Zacchaeus, it's a word for a lot of people. It's a word for myself. In fact, I constantly have to remind myself of the dangers of of lifting my views and my opinions, even though I'm passionate about a lot of them, uh, above the things of Jesus because somehow I might not be able to experience the miracle that has the potential to be taking place right in front of my very own eyes. See, the challenge is not for us to mold Jesus into our image, right? That preacher said that line, and I was like, man, that was like a dagger to my heart. Because see, when I went through that line at Starbucks, and I had my own views and opinions about that man, yeah, that was me, right? Making Jesus into my image. Because I think if I would have not been the crowd that day, I would have been thinking, at the very least, how can I pray for that man? How can I pray that he gets to sit with Jesus somehow, whether it's through myself or someone else he comes in contact that will change that man's life, that will radically take him from the streets to a place of okayness at least, right? So often I'd say, Father, forgive me for, I'm too often trying to mold you into my image instead of me into yours. There's this famous story in the Bible about the prodigal son, I'm sure a lot of you might know it, um, where you have this son who asks for his inheritance and he goes and blows it, right? He spins on all these things and realizes like, man, my dad's servants have it better than me, I'm, I'm gonna go home and see if I can be a servant. Then the dad rushes in, meets him, I think in the driveway, I'd imagine, um, gives him a hug and throws a big feast for him, right? Then the brother, the older brother, comes flying in, upset, right? Dad, 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 I... <laughs> I've been serving you forever, never doing anything wrong, I've obeyed you, all this stuff. Like, and you never threw me a party ever. And the father says something so unbelievably profound and something that I often miss again. He says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. See, both sons were separated from him, right? This son was off doing bad deeds and this one's off doing good deeds. We don't often think that the good deeds are the bad things because the good deeds he's trying to do are trying to earn something favor in his dad's eyes, right? Like, oh, you never threw a party for me. But what he's missing is, is that the father is saying, son, you already belong. That's incredible. Like, the older son cannot not be his son at this point. And he's saying, trust the announcement that I've made about what is already true about yourself. Fellow believers of Jesus, we're already at the party, man. And that's incredible. He's saying to that son, you're already at my seat. You're at the table, this banquet, this is amazing. It's, it's already all yours and when you're a part of Jesus, you are already at the table. You are at the party. Maybe it's time we open up the seats for more people, right? The thing for us to know, if you relate to that, which far too often it's me, is live with open seats at our tables because we're already at the party. Man, I wish that day, 
I was praying about how I could get that guy to the party instead of being the one who is thinking the other things, who is deeming him to be Zacchaeus-like, right? Because it's not just open seats for those that are easy, right? It's also for the ones that are difficult to love. The story ends with Jesus in Zacchaeus. It ends so incredibly, like salvation, he says, comes to, to, to not just him, but this house, like that's pretty cool. And then he says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. See, a thing is lost when it gets out of its own place and into the wrong place. And when we find it, we return it to the place that it was always meant to occupy. A person is lost when he or she wanders away from God and is found once that person again occupies the rightful place of being in the family of God the Father. For some of you, if you're here today and and you relate to Zacchaeus and you're like, oh man, that's me. You need to know that there's a place at the table for you. There's a place at the table for you. There's a place of being found and belonging. And being in that seat doesn't mean you have to be completely cleaned up. It doesn't mean you have to confess every sin before you even get there because the honest truth is when you do get there and you do sit with them, man, it comes out and he changes you. And it's incredibly beautiful. Your life will be radically changed forever. So North Shore Christian Church, family, right? May we realize that we are valued, loved, and good enough to sit at Jesus' table. A table where our lives will be changed forever if we choose to sit down with him. And may we live with open seats at our tables for those who need to sit with Jesus too because we are already at the table. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for loving us, Lord, even when it seems like we don't think we deserve the love. But God, you see us as, as your children, and you say you are lovable, you are good, you are great, and come and sit with me, and I will make you new, I will change your life. Father, I confess to you today, too often uh, I allow either others or myself to say I don't deserve that, that I, I'm not good enough. Father, if there's other people here who may feel like they they don't belong, they can't come, they can't sit, they can't be with you, may you show them wrong and may you invite them in, Lord. And Father, if there's others here who are like me also, who sometimes decide to try to make you into our image of God by putting our things above you, well, may you help us to change as well. Lord, we're already at the party, we're already at the table do a wondrous work in our hearts. Father, it's in your name I pray, amen. We're gonna go into a a time of communion. There's a lot of great things that happen at tables, right? One of those was uh, one of the most significant things ever, and that's when, uh, when Jesus was at the table with his disciples, with his close friends on that last night, right? And he's sitting there with them and, and, and wouldn't you know, even the man who's gonna betray him has a seat at the table with him at that moment, right? That's pretty incredible. And they're sitting at this table eating together and he's, he's foretelling them essentially that he's gonna die uh, and, and he takes this bread and he takes the cup and he takes the bread and he said, this is my body and he said, this is the cup and, and it represents my blood that was poured and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't it kind of cool that we take communion at tables sometimes? Well, we do every week, but I think it's because it's also helping to remember 
that that's the sacrifice, right? For us. And so today, we're gonna take communion that way, at a table, to reflect much like Jesus did with his disciples. And so, it's a little bit different than, you know, we typically do here in this room. And so, when you feel led to over the next two, three songs, you can come up and take it. We encourage you to take the bread and dip it into the juice and then eat it. We prefer you not to drink the juice. That would be weird. And then if you need to spend some time praying uh, by yourself there, that's great. If you wanna take it back to your seat and pray and sit there, that would be great too. And there's tables in the back, there's in the front. If you're gluten-free, there's some of those too. And if you have issues, a hard time getting up, we'll bring a tray to you. We just think that this is so incredibly valuable because it reminds us of exactly why Jesus did what he did. Like, he did all that so we could be enough, right? If we weren't enough, he wouldn't have done it for us, right? And so we're gonna do that today. We're gonna take communion together. And then uh, at the end, we'll do some more things. Um, Yeah, but we're gonna take communion. Let's do that.